This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The next American president will be the oldest in history. We look at the impact of a septuagenarian in the Oval Office. And as we head into the giving season in the midst of the pandemic, we look at the top 100 charities according to Charity Intelligence. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It appears age plays a role in how stressed you are amid the pandemic. Older workers may be less susceptible to burnout for a number of reasons, including not having to balance childcare. A new survey found 29% of those 55 and older report feeling more burned out today than a year ago, but that figure was higher for other age groups. 37% for those 25 to 40, and 32% for people 41 to 54. A large number of hospitalized COVID patients have been found to have low levels of vitamin D. Researchers in Spain found that 82% had the deficiency, with men more affected than women. These patients also showed increased inflammatory markers that rise when fighting off an infection. But the study did not find an association between the levels of vitamin D and the severity of COVID-19. Oregon voters have passed a measure making the state the first in the U.S. to decriminalize possession of hard drugs such as heroin, methamphetamine, LSD, and oxycodone. It means those who are found with personal use amounts of hard drugs won't face criminal charges. Instead, they will be able to choose to pay a $100 fine or go to an addiction recovery center. It's a move advocates say Canada should consider. Gary Trudeau. I write and I draw a comic strip called Doonesbury. 72-year-old Pulitzer Prize winner Gary Trudeau reflected this week on his iconic Doonesbury comic strip that turns 50. The popular comic strip was syndicated in 1970 and brought Trudeau almost immediate star status overnight. Now he's moving the cartoon characters through the generations after realizing he'd kept them frozen in time on a college campus and neglected aging. He's now focused on developing two new generations who come of age. This is the time of year when older Canadians plan their trips south. But the pandemic has shuttered most plans. And if cruise ships are your thing, forget it. They won't be setting sail after all this year. The association representing Princess, Carnival and Royal Caribbean will continue to suspend operations for the rest of the year and spend this time implementing COVID-19 safety precautions that will include setting up testing labs aboard ships. 
The organization, which represents 95% of global ocean-going cruise capacity, estimates that the suspension of cruises since mid-March has resulted in losses of over 25 billion U.S. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Either the 74-year-old Donald Trump or Joe Biden, who turns 78 on November 20th, will break the record for the oldest president ever inaugurated. There have been questions about both their mental states, but both have come through grueling campaigns. Will this change society's view of aging? I reached Brent Green, an American expert in demographics and generational marketing. What do you think the impact of having two such old candidates is? You can look at it from a positive point of view and you look at it from a negative point of view. The positive point of view is if they are effective and vital in their positions, then it changes our uh, cultural notions about what it means to grow old and what old people are supposed to do or not supposed to do. The more we see effective leaders that are older, That's role modeling that people can appreciate. But the other side of it, of course, is that ageism is very deeply embedded in our cultures. And there will be people always looking for reasons to say, well, there's a senior moment. Did you see that? Couldn't remember this or that. Or did he just stumble? Uh Uh-oh, he's now having cognitive disabilities. So you could see... It'll magnify both the positive and the negative. We hope on balance, of course, those of us who are seniors or are over the age of 50, let's say, uh, that we'll see good role modeling and we will think it not so extraordinary that older people will step up for offices later in life. Um, But the other, other side of it is if we do you see people that have lots of trouble? They, they don't have the stamina. They don't have the men- mental agility to, to, to undertake the work that's required. Then it'll reinforce existing stereotypes. But if we see the vitality carried through by Biden, he, if he's the, elected the president, then he'll, re- he'll reinforce the idea that age does not necessarily have to be the barrier it was once thought to be. Has uh, the Trump administration contributed to a vital view of older people? A lot of Trump's main people are older, even those he doesn't agree with, with like Dr. Fauci. And uh, he's nothing if not vigorous when you look at how he keeps a schedule. I think he's shown a lot of vigor. I think he's shown a lot of engagement in the job in terms of being visible every single day. Uh, he certainly hasn't been a laid-back president anyway, so you could say he's been vigorous in that way, but you haven't seen any photographs of him working out. You, you know, he's got a uh, famous bad diet, um, you know, uh, cheeseburger. Doesn't golf count? <laughs> well, not in my mind, but I suppose some people consider that sufficient exercise. Uh, but, again, I live in a state which one of the most active in the country, I was on the phone this morning with a number of Zoomers uh, in a Zoom call, and they were heading out for a bicycle, aggressive bicycle rides, I mean 30, 40, 50-mile rides, and that's their typical workout. So, again, um, there's been some positive modeling in the sense that, you know, his feistiness, his ability to argue, his 
willingness to take on all power uh, has shown a certain mental style that says that he's very capable uh, holding his own. But we haven't seen, you know, the kind of modeling such as how John Fitzgerald Kennedy modeled uh, national fitness programs and, and looked at healthy aging in that way also, which I think a lot of us consider is a fundamental part of aging is staying physically fit and active as well as uh, mentally fit and active as well. What about Biden? It appears he will be the president and he's going to turn 80 in office. That's unprecedented. Uh, it absolutely was. But I also remember when Ronald Reagan took over the office of the presidency and because of the relative youth of the uh, the boomer generation, the Zoomers, relative to Reagan, it doesn't seem implausible that 80 will look like, you know, depending on how healthy and fit the individual is, will necessarily look like some major barrier to that individual being able to effectively do the job. Because, again, I mean, depending on how deep you get into the, the changes that are being made in medical science, the... Uh, increasing expansion of the lifespan or the health span, more importantly than the lifespan is the health span. We're seeing that happen every decade where more people are getting older and being healthier for longer. And I think that's partly the mindset of the boomer zoomer aging into the seventh and eighth, ninth decade of life. Uh, a large percentage of that demographic has been oriented toward wellness, you know, since, you know, 40 to 50 plus years, you know, focused on things like diet, fitness, uh, mental health, and things like that. So I, I think you're going to see a general shift in the population that's going to be somewhat improved by medical science as well as a mindset that people live a lifestyle that, uh, allows them to stay healthier longer. I just believe that we will redefine the meaning of 80. Generally speaking, uh, in the United States and here in Canada, boomers, Zoomers vote in very, very high numbers proportionally. But in this election, when you've had huge turnout from everyone, uh, does that drown out that generational voice or is it still where it was? There's always the old saw that people tend to vote their age so that people under 30, 30% of them are less turn up and vote. Uh, but now with mail-in balloting and the increasing number of ways that people can vote instead of going and standing at the poll on election day, uh, that's changing it right there. It's making it easier for young people to vote. It, it's, moving it toward a preferred direction that they don't have to go and stand in line for two or three hours when they're in their young careers and very busy and difficult to lead their lives to go vote. So I think that's creating a larger participation. We've had a tremendous buildup to this election because of uh, extensive dissatisfaction with the current administration. So whether or not this happens again in 2024 is anybody's guess, but I suspect that as this younger gener the younger generation continues to age, a larger and larger percentage of them will continue to vote. And as the senior population uh, tends to diminish uh, in terms of the, those that are uh, seniors now, 
uh, you're going to see a, a rebalancing of the impact of the voting demographics. Anything else you'd like to leave us with on the role of age in this campaign? What I'm seeing is I have reasons to be optimistic that older adults can fulfill these important leadership roles much later in life, which actually opens it up to young people as well, because they're going to get older eventually. Okay. And eventually they're going to not not necessarily be blocked uh, to opportunities later in life just because of their age. Okay. Brent Green, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. Okay. Bye-bye. That was demographics expert Brent Green. You can read more about the aging brain in the presidency in the November issue of Zoomer magazine. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, this year's top 100 charities. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. This holiday giving season presents the perfect storm for frontline charities. The pandemic is causing a huge drop in donations along with a massive increase in demand. Charity Intelligence is out with its annual Top 100 ratings to help us make sure to get the biggest impact from the dollars we donate. I talked with Managing Director Kate Bain. In the efforts to flatten the curve, so many Canadians are facing hard times. And Imagine Canada back in April estimated giving would decline by between 4 to $6 billion. This is really a time, if you can donate to charities, step up. Now with COVID, I hope we can all sort of pivot in our giving. A, give to charities that actually have a need for money. It's not a good time to start building up endowments. This is when money is needed on the front lines. And also have a good hard look at the food banks that are really facing unprecedented surges and demands of people using their services. You're saying that we should look at the reserves and not give money to charities that can keep going for a number of years, right? Exactly. Sadly, back in March, uh, when COVID first came down, we were a bit alarmed at certain charities that were stepping up trying to fundraise for various COVID initiatives. With COVID, you also have to look at a charity's balance sheet. You have to look at how much cash and investments it already has in the bank, because some charities literally have millions and millions of dollars in the bank. Relative to what they spend each year on programs, These charities can go for three years, five years, even longer without raising a single dime right now in fundraising. And yet when you look at a charity's balance sheet, you can see that some charities right now really need donations to keep the lights on. So looking at how much money a charity has, um, you don't want to be giving to what we call the sort of toilet paper hoarders. They already have enough money to make it through this very extreme period. Focus your attention right now on giving to charities that actually need the money to help on the front line. How so? Is a charity financially transparent? Does a charity's annual report provide enough information for donors to make an informed and intelligent giving decision? Why, for instance, did the Daily Bread Food Bank, which has been around for a very long time, make the list for the first time? Again, improvement. Daily Bread's been around for a while. It's a good food bank. 
And in the last year with this year's analysis, we saw strong improvements in its results reporting. What about the Terry Fox Foundation? Again, very strong improvements in its results reporting. And also, I believe, in its cost efficiency. So that's one of the largest national charities working in the cancer field. And very good information coming out about the research it funds and how it's moving the needle on cancer research. What was the impact of the WE charity scandal? Following the WE scandal, a lot of donors had their confidence in charitable giving shaken. And 60% of Canadians say that because of the WE scandal, they're going to be doing more homework into the charities that they support. Always match the charity with your values. I know that we'll be getting calls from Alberta and people will be saying, how could this charity possibly have made it because of its stand on, you know, oil pipelines or whatever? And that's okay. But if you look at a charity, is it transparent? Is it accountable to its donors? Are its financial numbers in line? And at bottom line, what is the kind of impact it's having? Then you see a totally different list of charities. We hope our list We hope Charity Intelligence's research is a great place to start in doing that homework. Okay, Kate Bain, thanks so much. Thank you, Libby. That was Kate Bain of Charity Intelligence. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.